The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you, Blair. I think the big difference is we look the way the professors looked during those days. Just <laughs> now, um, I cannot begin to describe to you what a privilege it is for me to be uh, back here at Cairn. My wife and I met here. She's also. Yeah, maybe you can stand up and we will hear from her tomorrow. Yeah, this was the first place that I came to after leaving Kenya from some of the most remote parts of this world. Uh, having never been on a plane before, I landed here and I'm, I will always, always be grateful for all that I learned here and the welcome that I received and we will get a chance to share a little bit about that as we go on. So this place holds a very, very special place in our hearts. And I want to thank the Missions Committee for inviting us to, uh, to be here this week. This is a very, very special honor. Um, there are many people, many missionaries in the audience and professors who could do this much, much better than me, but God has chosen me for today. So you're stuck with me. Um, so we'll try to weave in our stories as we go along, and we have one goal, to convince you that being in mission is actually a real privilege, it's not a burden. That's what I want us to leave this place, thinking it's very easy to leave a missions conference feeling guilty because you hear all these people, things people are doing, and you're not doing those things, so you feel guilty. If we make you feel guilty, we have failed in our, in our, in our objective today. Of course, today marks the max 22 years since the events of September uh, 11, 2001. Uh, if you ask, uh, I'm sure many of you are not born when that, when that happened, but if you ask anybody who was alive and could, could comprehend what was happening at that time, they can tell you where they were and what they were doing when that happened. But I want to point out that the events of September 11 as horrendous as they were, did not actually increase our urgency for missions. What they did was just make that urgency more obvious. We've always had our marching orders from our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we, we are called to follow in his steps. And so what I want us to see once again is that this is a real, real privilege for us to be doing this because his heart beat, his heart beats for the whole world. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save that which, that which was lost. So what I want to do, because I could give you statistics about all that's happening, people that need to be reached and all of that, and it might feel very, very remote to you. So I want to speak this morning in a very personal way so that you can actually begin to see your place in what God is calling all of us to do. Uh, I know they've given me about 30 or so minutes. That's, a, that's very unfair to a black preacher. That's just an introduction. So, so we'll have to do this as quickly as, as we can. So the passage that we are going to be looking at is um, Genesis chapter 19. And this is a very strange passage for many of you to be, to be uh, hearing, read during a missions conference because as you know, this is the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but we, this, 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 this passage here, it's one of my favorite in the entire scriptures, and I'll tell you how, how I came about this. I was, I was visiting my brother, and I was actually very, very sick that day, but I was reading through the Bible, and I crawled out of bed, and I, I 
pick up my Bible and I say to God, please speak, say something encouraging to me from the scriptures this morning. And when I opened the Bible, I was reading Genesis 19 and I almost closed it. I didn't want to read it. But as I was reading it, God actually did answer that prayer as we will see in a minute. And what we will see here Almost every message I've ever heard from this passage talks about God's judgment, God judging sin. But uh, in, there is another theme that, that goes in tandem with that of judgment here, and this is, this is ignored by a lot of people, but hopefully you'll be able to see it because I think this theme is even more important because it weaves together the story of God's plan of salvation for all of us throughout the world and throughout history in a powerful, powerful way. And if I were to give this message a title, I would, call agent, I would call it agents of blessings because I want each one of us to see ourselves as agents of God's blessings in a very, very broken world. That's what God wants to do with each one of us. So we begin reading from verse 27 of Genesis chapter 19. This is what it says. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Now this story occurs in the context of a writing sound in the Bible that Bible scholars refer to as an inclusio. And what that what means is this. The author begins telling one story, and then he interrupts that story and inserts new material in the, in the story, and then comes back later and finishes the story that he was telling. And this new material that's inserted there is supposed to highlight the point that the author is making. And if we had the time, I would show you different um, places where this, is, this happens in a very powerful way, even in the very book of Genesis, but we don't have that time, so let's just look at what's happening here. In Genesis chapter 18, the previous chapter, we have three visitors who go and visit Abraham in his tent. And in chapter 19, it, from verse 1, it begins telling, now we are no longer with Abraham, we have moved on, and we are with the, now we are with the Lot and Sodom and Interaction and all those things. And then in the same chapter, chapter 19, from verse 20, uh, 27, 28, and 28, Abraham is brought back into the picture, and we get the conclusion of the point the author is trying to, to make in, the, in, this, in this passage. So Genesis, um, Genesis, 9, Genesis 19, verse 29 is going to be our, our key verse. If you forget everything I say, just go back and read Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, and you have the entire message in, intact. Because this, pas this passage, is, uh, it actually reads like a mistake. It's very easy to miss the point that he's making here. Let me read it one more time. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. It's very easy to miss what the author is really doing here. Because it says this, God remembered who? Just pretend I've spoken many places, and my favorite audiences are usually the African-American churches, so because they respond. Just pre let's, pre let's pretend we are African-Americans here. <laughs> okay. okay. So God remembered who? Abraham. And he rescued yeah, what is that about? Why didn't God remember Lot and rescue Lot? It says that God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. And that's an amazing thing to see. Uh, the reason for this is there wasn't really much to remember about Lot. So Lot was only saved 
because God remembered Abraham. If we had the time, we would set these two chapters side by side, and you would see how intentional the author is in making this powerful point. In Genesis 18, he talks about three visitors who approach Abraham, and in Genesis chapter, in the, in chapter 19, he talks about two visitors who show up in Lot's home. And what you would see is that when they are with Abraham, they have a wonderful time. They even have a feast in that home, and they leave a blessing there. By this time next year, you have a son. But then when they are with Lot, there's a lot of tension that goes on in, the, in, in this home there. And when, when they are with Abraham, there are actually three visitors. And by the time they get to Lot, there are only two. And I think it's, it's, we are meant to infer from that that the, the, the Lord himself did not go with the angels of destruction to Sodom. In Genesis 18 and verse 22, it says in my translation, it says, uh, Abraham was left standing before the Lord when the two angels left. But the oldest manuscripts, some of the best, actually have that backwards. And what they say is this. The Lord was left standing before Abraham. And because the people who translate the Bible, and my Bible scholars and the Old Testament scholars, don't know what to do with that because it seems to be backwards. The Lord was left standing before Abraham. doesn't seem to make any sense. And because I'm not an Old Testament scholar, I'll tell you what this means. Okay? <laughs> I think what we're supposed to see is, is the obvious point that the Lord himself did not go with the angels, or angels of destruction to Sodom. He was left standing before Abraham, as it, it actually says. So Lot and Abraham are two very different individuals. Lot's house is not the kind of a home where you dash in through the back door, uh, kick off your shoes, take off your jacket, and search on the couch and ask what's for dinner. This is a place where you are on pins and needles, waiting for the time to come when you can leave and go to a different place where you are more at ease, where you are more accepted. This is, this is the way Lord's house is. It's the nature of persons not to show up where they are not wanted. And God himself is a person. In, Gen in Revelation 3.20, the Bible says, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We use these words to introduce the gospel to non-believers, but they were actually written to Christians who, who have who had shut Jesus out. It's possible for each one of us to be able to do that. And so God is a person, and he actually does desire a relationship with each one of us. And so as we look at this passage, I want to draw two lessons and a conclusion, and we will be done. And the first lesson that I want us to learn from this is that we all need to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. We all need to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives because God remembered who? Abraham. And saved? Lot. Yes, God remembered Abraham and saved Lot. Lot is one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible because when we find him with his uncle Abraham, he's a very blessed man and they're actually forced to part ways because of their respective wealth. As long as he was hanging around his uncle Abraham, he was a very blessed man, but at the end of his life, he is in a cave doing some, something that he had hoped the angels would do, as you, if you read the passage, which is a very, very serious thing. He had descended into the depths of evil and despair. And the author wants you to be able to see this is what was happening with Lot, and he was only saved because of Abraham. The other is, again, very deliberate in revealing to us the character of Lot, leading us to the conclusion that it was because God remembered Abraham and he rescued Lot.
And so the choices, if we don't have the time to look, I wish we did to look at the other different ways in which the other does this in this book. Uh, but we don't really have that, uh, that, that time. So what I want to emphasize is this. In a very important way, this is your story and this is my story. Because we all have people in our past who did a lot of things to make it possible for us to be where we are today. We all have Abrahams in our lives. We are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants if we are able to see anything at all. But we live in a time when we are encouraged to think first and foremost only about ourselves. Just individual fulfillment is the most important uh, thing in our lives today, unfortunately. After analyzing surveys from 1.3 million people, respondents, spanning a period of about six, six, 60 years, psychology researcher and social critic Jean Twenge, who teaches at San Diego State University, uh, says that an attitude of entitlement and self-focus have become endemic among many people today. This is what she writes. We speak of the language of the self as our native we speak the language of the self as our native tongue. So much of the common sense advice that's given these days includes some variation on self. Worried about how to act in social situations? Just be yourself. What's the good thing about your alcoholism, drug addiction, murder conviction? I learned a lot about myself. Concerned about your performance? Believe in yourself, often followed by, and anything is possible. Should you buy the new pair of shoes or get a nose ring? Yes. Express yourself. Why should you leave an unfulfilling relationship or quit the boring job or tell off your mother-in-law? You have to respect yourself. Trying to get rid of bad habits? Be honest with yourself. Confused about the best time to date or get married? You have to love yourself before you can love someone else. Should you express your opinion? Yes, stand up for yourself. And the list just keeps growing and growing. And so many young people these days enter the workforce with very unrealistic expectations about their own ability to succeed without the discipline it actually takes to succeed and without that ability to connect relationally with other people. And the result, she says, is high levels of anxiety and depression and mounting debt in an age of instant gratification. This is our life today. And this is how she entitles, she entitles her book, Generation Me, Why Today's Young People are why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. This is the story of not just people here, young people here in America, but it's the story of many people around the world. But we come into this world totally dependent on other people and begin our lives as babies. We depend on inventors, for example, who make our lives easier in all kinds of ways. We depend on researchers and people who, who dedicate their lives to doing all kinds of things so that we can be able to have the comforts that you and I have. We depend on, 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 we depend on parents and we begin our lives as helpless babies. We, be, we depend on teachers and professors and we, de we depend on young soldiers who give their lives uh, out in the field so that we can be able, uh, to, they can be able to protect our freedoms. We are dependent people and we owe a debt that we cannot be able to repay. Uh, the greatest of all is that we are depend, dependent, we are all dependent on the God who saves us because he remembers his son, Jesus Christ. So when you reflect on what it takes for us to be where we are, you find out that we are all debtors and we cannot be able to repay the debts that we all owe. You know, um, 
You may be extremely gifted at what you're doing, but if you don't recognize those who have gone before you and set uh, the stage for you to be able to do what you do, your life, it becomes very, very difficult for you to be grateful, and when you are ungrateful, it becomes very, very hard to even worship God. So we all have Abrahams in our lives that we need to be thankful for. Now, I know there are many Abrahams in the audience uh, this morning, and I just want to thank you for what you have done, uh, for what you have done to make it possible for us to be where we are. The people who knelt down and prayed before this school was started, God may be blessing the school over and over again in answer to their prayers, and we might think it's because we are so good and so gifted that we are able to do what we are doing, but God may be answering those prayers today. So... Here's an assignment. I know you have enough assignments, but this is, one, this is one you need to do. You must do. All of us must do. Think of the Abrahams in your life and the people that made it possible for you to be where you are, and you have never, thanked, you have never thought of even thanking them. You have an email to send, a letter to write, or even a phone call to make, or even better, a visit to make. And you, you need to go and talk to these people and just tell them what they mean to you because God remembered them and rescued you, just as he remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. But some of us look down through our family history and we can't find any good examples to be thankful for. And all we can think of are the, are the victims hanging from our family trees. And it becomes very, very difficult for us to be able to be thankful people. Now, if you are a person like that, where you look back and all you see is a lot of pain, people who hurt you in all kinds of ways, I have really, really good news for you coming from this passage. And the good news is you can be able to break that cycle. You can be able to say, from this moment on, this becomes a line of blessing, not just for me, but also for my family, that God has given you the freedom to be able to turn to him and turn the clock back and make it possible for you to become an Abraham from, through whom somebody else can be blessed. And that's, that's my second point. So the first point was, we all have Abrahams to be thankful for. And number two is, we are all called to be Abrahams for the sake of others. We are all called to be Abrahams for the sake of others. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. And God wants to remember you and rescue somebody out there. Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your family, maybe in other parts of the world, but God wants to remember you specifically and rescue somebody out there. You know, this is a message that I can be able to, that I can preach obviously from the scriptures, but in a very, very small way, I can also be able to preach this message uh, with my own life. Because I grew up, as, as Blair said, in some of the most difficult conditions imaginable. If somebody had told me at that time that I would be standing before an audience such as this presenting the gospel, I would have thought they were crazy. Because my, my family, until I was about five years old, my family was actually doing very well. My dad was employed, and I, I loved my dad. He was my hero. And I would just stand at the door when he would come home in the evening, waiting for him to to come and just, just spend time with me. I remember him teaching me how to draw and all that. that I never learned. I still cannot draw. But that was, <laughs> that was a precious, precious moment with my family. But then my, my father started drinking and doing other things outside the home, and he would get paid. My mom wasn't working. She stayed with us at home. She didn't have any marketable job skills, didn't have a job, didn't have anything, no education. So she stayed at home with us. But my father would be paid, and she, he would be gone for a couple of weeks. He wouldn't come back home. And so we started 
going to bed many, many nights with no food to eat, with nothing to eat. Now, I know in this context I have to explain what nothing to eat means because I've seen people here open the fridge that is packed with stuff. You cannot put anything else in there. And what do they say? There's nothing to eat here. Or they go to the closet and it's full of clothes. And they say, I have nothing to wear. That's what I mean when I say that we had nothing to eat. In our home, many days, there wasn't even salt in the house. And we would go to bed hungry many times. And my dad became very, very violent. And I was on the receiving end of his anger most of the time for, for nothing. I didn't have to do anything to, uh, to have him express or, or take out that anger on me. Maybe I reminded him of something. I have no idea what the issue was. And finally, one day, one of my mom's friends came over and told us, your mom has left. Your mom left. I didn't know what that meant, what she meant by that. But we didn't wear shoes. No, nobody in my family except my dad had any pair of shoes. And I had learned how to identify my mom's footprints on the, on the dark roads in, in our village. And so I followed her footprints, the place far away where she had boarded the bus and she was gone. I almost cried myself to sleep there uh, that, that evening. Then I walked back and found my old, I have two older sisters trying to comfort, comfort the younger kids. There were eight of us in the family. Uh, and it was a miserable night because mom is gone and there's really nothing at home to eat. And, and, um, and my dad was nowhere to be seen. We struggled, really struggled. I was kicked out of school, had no clothes. I had just one pair of shorts and a t-shirt, and that was it, that I kept patching, patching up and fixing. And finally, this, this woman came back after a few, a few um, maybe a, a month or so. This woman came back and said to us, your mom has come back. And so we went to the place where she was, in a cornfield. And we, this is the first time that I saw my mom shed tears when she saw the condition that we were in. And she said to us, you go back home and I will come and get you tomorrow morning. And we said to her, no, we are, you are not leaving us again. So we spent the night in the cornfield. And remember that night, my, ma, my dad and his friend looking for us. Someone told, told them that we were there. And all we could see was a flashlight in the dark. And in the morning, he, they never found us. In the morning, we went to the, to the local government office where my dad was supposed to show up. And... In the, when uh, when we, we went there, he never did. And so all the kids and my mom and some elders and, the, and some people from the government were supposed to decide what to do. So they decided that my, my dad would keep some of the kids. My mom, even though she had no home, would keep the rest of the kids. And so my sister and I were taken back to my, da to my dad back home. And we found that my dad had changed the locks. So we stood outside with this man who had taken us over there. And then my... Um, my dad showed up, and this man walked a couple of steps to explain to him that he was supposed to keep us, keep me and my sister. And my dad said, I don't want them. Take them back where you got them from. And this was the last time I saw him alive, and this was the, those were the last words that I heard. So my mom was forced to take all of us without a home. We lived in places where, in, 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 in a shack, we've slept, we spent, we have slept outside, we did all kinds of things to, to be able to survive. But then um, a missionary, a missionary couple, this is what happened. My mom became very sick, and I took her to the, to the hospital. We, I walked her to the hospital, and then I went, to, I went back home. A missionary had given us a Bible, a copy of the Word of God in school. I happened to be there in school that day when she came and gave us a copy of the Bible. And I was reading it. She didn't tell us to begin reading from the Gospel of John. She told us to begin reading 
uh, she sort of just read the Bible. So I was reading from Genesis 1-1, and I just kept reading it through. When I went back home, after leaving, leaving my mom in the hospital, I said to my brothers and, sis- and sisters, my, uh, I said, this book come, that I'm reading says there is a God who answers prayer. So let us pray and see what this God is going to do for us. They could barely get off the floor, but I forced them to get off the floor, uh, and we had not had, had anything to eat for a couple of days. We got them, got them off the floor, and I say, let us pray. We prayed, and of course, fasted, right? <laughs> and, and then I went, I went to the very first home that I came to, knocked on the door, and this missionary lady answered the door. And that's when my life began to change. That's how I found out about Cairn University. And I will tell you the story another time because, again, they didn't, they didn't give me enough time. <laughs> I was, so I led my mom to Christ, my siblings, my grandmother, and so many others to Christ, even from, from that very, very young age. And I, I, I saw God using, it, using me in ways that I could never have imagined. There was a time that I was working in the slums in, in, in Nairobi with a pastor there who had a gift of evangelism. And one day he said to me, you're going to be our speaker. Right, right on the platform with maybe 3,000 people. There was no social media at that time. People came to, we were the only show in town. So people came to listen to us. And a lot of people gave their lives to Christ. And that's when my calling to missions and to ministry began. So, uh, but I'll tell you, we'll be telling our stories as, as, as time goes on this week. So, point number one, we, we are to be thankful for the Abrahams in our own lives. Number two, we are all called to be Abrahams in somebody's life. God wants to remember you and rescue somebody out there. Number three, which is the application, and the final point, we become Abrahams for the sake of others by developing a history with God. And the only point that I want to make here is this. You may look at the missionaries here, or somebody like me who preaches, or your, your professors, and you might feel like you are, you are totally inadequate to be able to do what they do. I remember one of my colleagues coming to my office in Atlanta, and he knocked on the door, and he said to me, uh, he, had, he was a new speaker, he had gone to speak to this place, and he thought he did a terrible job. So he says to me, I am, I am so unworthy. I am so, and so I told him to I sit down. Then I said to him, my friend, you are a lot more unworthy than you think. <laughs> I said, we all are. The only difference is that when we are given over to God and God is working through us, there's no limit to what we can be able to accomplish when God, is, God himself is working through us. He did not, he did not um, pick you because he didn't know enough about you. He knew everything about you, and he's still called you. And I want to read a story here that illustrates this point really well, uh, and I'll finish with it. It's called When Grandma Goes to Court. Listen to this. It says, lawyers should never ask a a Mississippi grandma a question if they are not prepared for the answer. In a trial, a southern small-town prosecuting attorney called his first witness, a grandmotherly elderly woman, to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She replied, Why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you ever since you were a boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you're unfaithful to your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot, and you haven't the brains to realize that you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? 
she again replied. Why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He cannot build a normal relationship with anybody, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention that he, like you, is also unfaithful to his wife. Yes, I know him. The defense attorney nearly died. The judge asked both counselors to approach the bench, and in a very quiet voice, he said, if either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> What a relief to know that God knows you and he knows me exactly as we are. And yet, he still calls us, he still loves us, and he really wants us to be that open before him because he wants to make Abrahams out of, out of us. We must be thankful for the Abrahams in our lives. We need to become Abrahams for the sake of others, and we do that by developing a history with God in our fallenness, and God changes us to make us who we are. And we'll talk about our ministry and what we do and all that on Wednesday and on Friday, but let us close in prayer. Yeah. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time to be able to reflect on the fact that you, have, you love each one of us, that you have called us to be your children, even in a, in a difficult, however difficult the situation might be, that you are with us, and the safest place to be is in the center of your will. We thank you, Lord, for the time you've given us to be together, and we dedicate this week once again to you, and ask, Lord, that you will speak to each one of us in our hearts. We thank you, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, whom you remember, and rescue us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.